0: The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments. Now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the latest interest rate decisions. We're going to be looking at the consequences for currency markets, and we're going to be looking at the wider macro picture. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Craig Erlem, who is the Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. Craig, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: So we spoke, Craig, a little bit earlier on in the year, and the conversation at that point was very much on interest rates. And fast forward a few months, this is still very much the main story in town, at least it has been for the last few weeks. So, of course, last week you got the decisions from the Bank of England as well as the Federal Reserve to pause their hiking cycle. They both kept rates steady. Uh, It was a bit of a surprise from the Bank of England, but I think that was very much telegraphed in the case of the Federal Reserve. So I think we start with the, the question, Craig, of you know, looking at what they did last week, of course, there were some expectations that the Bank of England were going to hike, but they didn't. I mean, if we take each uh, institution that the Bank of England and then the Federal Reserve, do you think that is it from both of those in terms of the rate hikes they're going to be making in the current cycle?
1: Yeah, I think that is to be honest. Um, I think there's a chance that we see one from the Bank of England probably more so than the Federal Reserve. Uh, which perhaps runs a bit contrary to what most people believe. And the reason why uh, I think that is that the Bank of England vote, you just simply can't ignore it. It was five to four. So you'd think that it can't take that much for the pendulum to swing the other way at the next meeting. And I think we were quite uh, surprised that they didn't raise rates at that last meeting because it's almost maybe the last opportunity. They've got to... Argue the case for it unless the data turns a bit nasty. I think the data is expected to improve over the next few months, and we don't want to raise rates unnecessarily. But I think most people would have agreed before the last meeting that a 5.5 cent terminal rate is probably about right, considering the circumstances. Yes, we saw the big decline in inflation earlier in the week, but we've seen that these numbers can be volatile. We also, a week or two ago, saw wage growth hit a record high, uh, and that can't be ignored either. So I was a bit surprised that it swung just in favour of the hold, Um, whereas uh, the Federal Reserve struck a much more hawkish tone. When you compare the language, people may suggest maybe I'm being a bit picky, but I think it's very different. And I think central banks, we forget, choose their words extremely carefully. So when the Fed is saying that they think they're going to raise interest rates again, the dot plot suggests that, uh, and the interest rates will stay high or stay higher for longer, then they're clearly trying to give the message that you shouldn't expect an interest rate hike at least until later on. Uh, So you shouldn't expect an interest rate cut until later on next year, at least. The Bank of England, on the other hand, said they're going to say sufficiently high for sufficiently long. And you could say, well, yeah, it's basically the same message, isn't it? And I, I don't think it is. I think there's an enormous amount of ambiguity in the Bank of England's message. It's almost as if policymakers actually think inflation is going to fall faster and that they can't or don't want to commit for, to interest rates staying high for long. They think there is the prospect of a rate cut um, maybe a little bit earlier and want to leave that flexibility within their language. And I may be picking here, but I am I, I feel quite uh, not confident, but I think the Bank of England is clearly of the view that inflation is coming down, is going to come down quite rapidly between now and the end of the year. And that by Q2 next year, we could potentially be talking about interest rates falling. Indeed. And, and obviously, looking at the
0: latest inflation data from the UK, is 6.7%. So well above their target. But of course, there's this element of long and variable lags of monetary policy. And of course, 14 consecutive hikes hasn't really been fully priced in to some markets and, and of course, the, the economy. So I think there's some thinking there that... If they do keep rates on hold, that will continue for a little bit longer until we see the impact on inflation. But Craig, if we may, let's move on to the pound now, because that's been suffering somewhat against the the, the dollar. I mean, if you look at the move since the decisions last week, uh, the pound is significantly lower uh, against the dollar. Is that a sign of things to come or do you think that's a, a knee jerk reaction to the decision that we had last week, which was a bit of a surprise to keep rates on hold.
1: I'm probably leaning more towards the former, to be honest. Uh, I think this is a trend that had been building for the bulk of the summer, at least half the summer anyway. Uh, And we'd seen some big technical breakouts along the way. We've seen the 50-day simple moving average go. We've seen the 200-day simple moving average go. As well, just ahead of the meeting, interestingly, that happened, uh, and then we saw it consolidate until the decisions from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England came. And since then, we've been trending lower. I mean, we've got a dovish Bank of England or a seemingly dovish Bank of England uh, with a hawkish Fed. So, I mean, it was it was a, a, a I guess a pretty straightforward move that we've seen on the back of those two things. And if the Bank of England does think it's probably done and does think that it could potentially cut interest rates sooner than the federal reserve and they may become more explicit on that in the next few meetings then that should be bearish for the pound against the u.s dollar i think what there's a couple of things that the that the the u.s is contending with that the uk is doing to a lesser degree there's much more resilience in the u.s economy Uh, And I think so. I think that's a key factor, which is uh, which is contributing to the Fed's unease, and also contributing as well to uh, the strength of the US dollar. Um, So I think that's one key factor. And I think the other thing with the UK is um, is just the fact that I I do think the interest rate hikes are going to have a deeper impact on the economy. We've seen a slowdown in the US housing market, for example, uh, because why would people in the US look to be moving houses when interest rates will spike as much as they will? Uh, so it's kind of created a bit of a freeze in the US housing market, whereas in the UK, people are getting hit every month because every month people's fixed-term mortgages are, uh, are renewing and therefore they're getting hit with higher rates. At some point, we're going to have to have see that have a deeper impact on household spending and consumer activity. And we're not just seeing now mortgages rising, we're seeing rents rising as well. Uh, So that's going to have an impact on consumer activity too, capturing a greater basket of households uh, and their spending power. Uh, And I do think, therefore, we are going to see more more implications for the economy. And I think people are maybe too optimistic on the UK economy now. Um, They've gone from being overly pessimistic and I think now to overly optimistic. Hopefully, to an extent, I'm wrong on that. But I think the data later this year and going into 2024, I'm concerned that we could be seeing some undershoots for the economy. And I wonder whether that's playing into the Bank of England's thinking and saying, Maybe we can stop at five point two five rather than compound the pressure because it's possible that they think they can hit the inflation target without having to push the uh, economy over the edge. So you you mentioned in their rate cuts, Craig, and I think that's something
0: that I just want to pick up now and, and get your views on because, of course, the Federal Reserve said they'll be keeping rates higher for for longer than than previously expected. And as you mentioned, the Bank of England weren't weren't as clear, but were suggesting um, that we shouldn't expect uh, a rate cut in the short term. From your point of view, Craig, how quickly can that rhetoric change? You know, that's something that they're saying today. But if we start to see deterioration in the economic picture, particularly here in the UK, as you mentioned, the US is on a a much, much better footing than, than the UK I mean, could you see that that shift very quickly, and they start to 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 cut rates? I mean, if we start to see the UK maybe falling in into a recession, you know, there's no suggestion of that now, but you know, as you mentioned there, that you know, house uh, house prices have started to to fall, mortgage rates at this level, it's really eroding people's spending power, and that will have an economic. Impact at some point. I mean, how much weight do you put to the, to the comments about keeping rates for higher for longer, or do you think that's something they're just saying now? But in a few months' time, if things deteriorate, we could be looking at at right rate, rate hikes maybe as early as Q one next year.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think we can take what the Fed says there with a pinch of salt. If I'm honest, I think the plan for many central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, has always been be as hawkish as possible for as long as possible and pivot late. And I think there's a reason for that. They want to get the most bang for the buck from their rate hikes, but also they don't want to be seen to make a mistake on the way out, uh, as they did on the way in with the whole transitory mess. And we have to remember that almost the messaging from the Federal Reserve is more important on other central banks. They're almost the world central bank when the Fed talks all markets respond, all markets move. Um, uh, That's not the case, really, as far as the Bank of England is concerned. So maybe the Bank of England can afford to be a little bit more open uh, and a little bit more flexible in their messaging. I also think the Bank of England can almost be too honest for its own good at times. So that is something that you could argue is maybe a bit of a policy error, um, arguably, this idea that if you're saying if you're saying something that's remotely dovish, markets will leap on it and it kind of undermines your tightening efforts to that point. And I think that's something the Fed is particularly wary of. But I think for most central banks the the plan all along has been be as hawkish as possible until as late as possible and then pivot suddenly. Uh, and I think that's still the case for the Federal Reserve. I don't think it's going to be the fourth quarter of next year until we see a rate cut from the US. Um, I think we're probably looking at more like Q3 at this point perhaps. I think we'll see the Bank of England cut uh, a little bit sooner as well. And the, the the reason for that is quite simple. We've just had 15 years almost of zero interest rates, give or take. And I just, I find it hard to believe that these economies can adjust so quickly to more than 5% interest rates after 15 years of zero. Uh, I just don't think that that type of transition is normal. I don't think it's natural and I don't think it's sustainable. And, I am surprised that we've seen as much resilience as we have until this point. Perhaps running down pandemic savings has helped to shield uh, businesses or households uh, over the course of the last 12 months. But I don't think that's sustainable in the long run. And we've seen evidence that that has been uh, worn through uh, quite uh, quite largely in, in the US in particular. So I do think we will start seeing more of an economic toll going into 2024, and I think it's I think central banks are going to become increasingly wary of that, and that's why I think we will see earlier rate cuts. The markets are currently pricing in an earlier rate cuts than the central banks are, are currently alluding to, but it is in their benefit, as I keep saying, to maintain this hawkish tone, get the most bang for the buck from their interest rate hikes, ensure that markets are as tight as possible, uh, that your financial conditions are as tight as possible so that uh, they can uh, pivot as soon as possible because they don't want to necessarily tip the economy into recession just for the sake of it.
0: I'd, I'd have to agree with you personally there, there, Craig. I think these interest rates at these levels after being next to zero for, for such a long time, it's going to take a bit of A bit of time still to to play through in the economy and I think it will be to the detriment to to some households and that will have an impact. And, you know, looking particularly at the Bank of England, you know, I think probably Q1, Q2 there will be talks, if not an actual uh, rate cuts uh, from the Bank of England Federal Reserve. I'd have to agree with you on the timing there as well. Um, So we're going to move on now and touch very briefly on the the ECB and the the Bank of Japan whilst we're talking about interest rates. So Craig, ECB, they did increase rates in a dovish hike because they basically said that was that and they wouldn't be hiking again. And, And just looking here at the euro against the dollar that that again has suffered and it's getting down to, to parity. Do you see parity in the euro against the dollar, or, or maybe even beneath that going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually possible to be honest. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were below parity, so it's not like we're talking about this is a very odd phenomenon. But obviously, we do obsess with parity when we're getting around these levels because it's uh, so rare uh, in this currency pair. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised by the ECB. if I'm honest. I really thought that they would pedal the same line as the Federal Reserve, which is very hawkish for as long as possible. And I certainly didn't expect them to be so explicit in their messaging in that they have effectively finished raising rates alongside a rate hike. I thought there may be one or two meetings in between those two things happening because I thought they'd want to be very cautious. But then what we have to remember, I guess, as well, is that the euro area economy is struggling. Germany has been in recession and is probably going to be in recession again. The euro area is going to not grow uh, and hasn't been growing. It's been basically flatlining now and is expected to continue. The manufacturing recession is is having a big impact. The slower Chinese recovery is having an impact as well. Uh, and therefore, it is going to continue to take a toll. And I think that's one of the reasons why the ECB has felt that it can maybe make this decision and make such a bold and explicit statement as early as it has. Uh, But even then, I I, I was honestly still surprised that they decided to go um, with such a dovish hike. Uh, But it's quite clear now that the ECB is finished with its uh, rate tightening cycle. And uh, I'm probably pushing the ECB more along the lines of the Bank of England, if not even a little sooner in terms of when it could now start cutting interest rates, because if Germany falls into recession, if the euro area falls into recession, then um, then I think the ECB will feel like uh, and, and inflation is heading in the right direction, and I think by the end of the year we're going to have a much nicer looking inflation number. Uh, then I think the ECB will feel comfortable with starting to cut interest rates to focus a bit on the economy, uh, because their medium term projections will allow uh, for that to uh, for that to happen.
0: Indeed, as as you alluded to there, Craig, it's not a particularly pretty picture in some of those European economies at the moment. Um, So to pile on any further interest rates will probably push them uh, into a more detrimental situation. So I think we should just touch on briefly now, Craig, the the Bank of Japan, because they're dealing with an entirely different set of problems than we are here in in Europe and the, the US. And they've they have kept their monetary policy relatively easy and resisted calls to to tighten. You know, g- going forward from here, when you're looking at the at the yen, you know, it has been up towards that 150 level against the, the, the dollar. And um, it's fallen off since but it looks like that that could be a bit of a, a magnet. I mean, how much of a um what's the best word for this um you know bad situation are the bank of japan in and you know what tools do they have at their disposal um to, to put in place if they do start to see the, the yen going against them
1: so i think we have to remember that the bank of japan uh they've said for a long time uh, and the ministry of finance as well who obviously do the uh, made the decisions on the FX interventions. They've said for a long time, it's not necessarily where the yen is trading that concerns us. It's uh, the, the speed with which it moves uh, from A to B. Uh, so if we see rapid depreciation, then we're concerned. If we see the same level of depreciation over a long period of time, we're okay. Uh, th- the difficulty that they have right now is that we are now approaching levels that I mean, the two interventions which took place last, place last year, um, we've gone above one uh, against the US dollar around, three cents uh, sorry three like three big figures away from the other one so we're not too far away from that previous high but I think the speed with which we've got there is being a bit more gradual which may be why we don't see an intervention I also think there's another thing that we have to remember as well which is that the last time the Ministry of Finance intervened in the markets the Bank of Japan had no intention of doing anything to tighten financial conditions And therefore, they knew that this was kind of a last resort. The Bank of Japan has hinted recently that it could be time to uh, make some tweaks. They've obviously made a couple of tweaks to the yield curve control, very minor, but still tweaks. And they've recently alluded to the fact that by the end of the year, they may have a better idea from the data how sustainable stronger wages are, and therefore stronger inflation is. And therefore, it could be time to move away from negative interest rates. So there is every chance that the Ministry of Finance decides to because the pace of the decline isn't as bad as last time, then there is a chance that the Ministry of Finance may wait to see if the Bank of Japan makes moves, which will enable the yen to make that recovery. Again, this is all guesswork. At the end of the day, the the Ministry of Finance may just decide that I'm not following the Bank of Japan, I'm not waiting for the Bank of Japan to move. We'll intervene and we'll intervene at a time that suits us. There's every chance that that happens. But I do think uh, it's interesting that the Bank of Japan is making more noises about tightening. Inflation, as we saw overnight, is uh, is is high still, uh, and therefore it would allow for some form of tightening of financial conditions. That said, that makes it even more disappointing that they did nothing last week. They didn't change their language. They didn't do anything to really give a strong signal that they're about to make a, a move, but um, despite the fact that two weeks before we did see the Bank of Japan governor making that dropping those hints about interest rates. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months. It's a, we'll, have, we'll have to see um, how much uh, pain uh, the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance is willing to sustain over the course of the next two or three months uh, before one of them, at least, buckles. And if it's going to be a buckling in the short term, I think it would be the Ministry of Finance with interventions. And I think the Bank of Japan has kind of backed itself into a corner to wait till closer to the end of the year. So... Let's see how much, um, how much pain the the Ministry of Finance is willing to suffer, uh, and uh, and we'll have to go from there. But given that we had two interventions last year, you can't write off the prospect that they may decide to do so again, and they'll do so without warning as well.
0: Indeed, indeed. So we've been talking about interest rates, you know, in in the, in the Western world potentially plateauing. But I just want to move on now, Craig and and discuss something which could be a bit of a spanner in the works to this thinking, and and that's the higher oil price. I mean, just looking at it here today, uh, Brent is off slightly, trading around $92, but it has been higher than that, much higher than that, uh, in the the last few days. I mean, if we start to see oil push up, Brent oil push up to that $100 mark, or even above, does everything that we... Everything we just spoke about there in terms of rates plateauing, inflation falling, does that all go out of the window? And how much of a risk is that?
1: I would say it doesn't yet. Um, And there's a couple of reasons really for that. One is that we're still far away from the levels we were seeing oil trading at last year. It's also a completely different driver. So while last year we had a higher oil price, but we also had higher energy prices, we had higher food prices and all of that. This is very much a, a, an oil move. It's also an oil move that's driven by different factors as last time. Like I said, last time oil prices rose to $120, $130 a barrel on the basis of the fact that we saw a stronger recovery from the pandemic, which means we saw a stronger demand surge in the aftermath of pandemic shutdowns than oil producers accounted for when making that 10% cut early on in the pandemic. And what the message, believe it or not, coming from OPEC plus at the time was that we can't effectively increase output at the levels that will match demand. So therefore the shortfall was being driven by an inability to produce at the levels required rather than an unwillingness. Now there was skepticism around that people were very cynical, Uh, but that was the message at least coming from OPEC. This time it's very different. OPEC cut by 2 million barrels late last year. I think they cut by another million and a bit uh, later on in the year. This year, we've seen that extended into 2024. Saudi Arabia has done an additional 1 million barrel a day cut um, of its own accord. Russia has done a 300,000 barrel uh, a day cut exports uh, cut as well so now these are measures which are being put in place by OPEC in order to try and stabilize and balance the market and what they've effectively done is push the market into a three million barrel a day deficit in order to try and run down inventories and create uh, a price and level and balance in the markets which is suitable for an acceptable buy uh, oil producers but they're not going to want to just Push the global economy into recession for the, just for the sake of it. I don't think anyway. Uh, so while we are seeing oil trading around these levels right now, I think oil being around ninety dollars a barrel. Um, is not the end of the world for inflation. I don't think it's the end of the world for the economy either. But the closer we get to the end of the year, oil trading around $90 a barrel means that there's less chance of Saudi Arabia and Russia extending the cuts which they've put in place, which could allow for some more rebalancing in the market. And then, as I've already said, I'm a bit more pessimistic on the economy, so I'm a bit more pessimistic on the demand side as well. So that could help uh, prices to stabilize at more Moderate levels compared to what some people are forecasting above hundred dollars at this point.
0: Thank you. So I just want to pick up on that pessimism that you that you mentioned there, Craig, around the the economy, and and bring in equities now, if if we may, because I mean there's pessimism there, um, not just from yourself, but but from many corners, and there has been for some time, but that's not really being reflected in in equity indices at the moment, especially here, you know, in the UK, we're holding strong around this 7,600 level. There has been a little bit of weakness in some of the US indices over the past few weeks, but nothing major, still still up and, and near those highs. I mean, do you think that that pessimism slips into equity markets at at any point, are we going to need to see a real shift in the economic data before there's any
1: material moves in in equity markets? So we haven't seen too much pessimism in equity markets, but we haven't really seen too much progress for the last year. So I think that's worth noting. I I mean, we talk about um, there being more pessimism, but I think the fact that we've seen more resilience in the economy is why we've seen more resilience in the equity markets. And I think the timing of the AI boom, the 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 kind of eruption of AI stocks and companies and, uh, and technology, I think, has meant that we've seen uh, a stronger performance in equities, especially in tech, than we may otherwise have seen in the absence of that. So I think the timing of that was really important as well. But like I say, if we do see more of a downturn in the economy, then I would expect it to have an impact on... On these equities, typically at the end of tightening cycles, you can see equity markets, if I'm not mistaken, performing quite well. Um, and given that we've now seen the end of the tightening cycle in many cases, I'm pretty confident of that. We've done maybe the odd one, but I think in the bulk of cases, even beyond the ones we talked about, the S&B signaled they're done, um, uh, and the RBA, the Bank of Canada, etc., etc., have all signaled that they're done. The fact that we're at the end of the tightening cycle now could be uh, mean that equities perform well. But if now we get the delayed impact on the economy, then that makes the next three to six months uh, very interesting. Because what we will hope to see if the equities aren't going to perform well because the economy is struggling is we start to see a lot more progress on the inflation side, which allow investors to see that turnaround come from lower interest rates, which could then support equities beyond that point the risk of obviously still for equities in the short term is the uh, ultimately the economy. And I think that's what's stopping uh, any further progress to the upside. It's that uncertainty.
0: So, I mean, this is a subject we've been speaking about in the podcast you know, pretty much all all year. And in my view, Craig, would be, and I want to get your thoughts on this, that you don't see, and you haven't seen over the last 10 years, maybe longer since the financial crisis, you don't see any major shift in that the policies of central banks until they have to, until they're forced to. And, and a big part of that tends to be disruption in the equity market. So my view would be that we don't actually see any rate cuts until we start to see a big fallout in the equity market. So you know, significant declines on the S&P could spark the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Bank of England aren't that 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 much way inclined as the the Federal Reserve are in terms of the reactionary function they have to the the equity markets. But of course, they'll be keeping a close eye on it. So my, my view would be that we don't see a, a rate cut until we see a big drop in in equities and they feel they have to step in. I mean, w- would you offer any counter argument to that?
1: No, I would offer a counter-argument to it. I think uh, the, the kind of infamous Fed put is something that um, there is some legitimacy in, and we've seen plenty of evidence that over the, the last 15 years. But at the same time, I think we also know that uh, stable financial conditions um, it can be measured in many different ways. And stable financial markets, I think, is something that the Fed always wants to see. But the other thing, I guess, to further support your argument is that if we do see a drop-off in equities, the chance are that's because it's accompanied by a drop-off in the economy uh, and economic expectations, either on the basis of the economic data turning sour now and or in the next few months uh, and pointing towards recession in the US or a deeper recession in the US, that could lead to an underperformance in equity markets. And then the Fed could respond not necessarily explicitly to disruption in financial markets but actually saying you know what the economic underperformance that we hadn't factored into our calculations means that we actually think we're going to achieve our inflation targets ahead of schedule and now we can afford to cut interest rates in order to support the economy so i think that would be more the argument and it would also give you the explanation for an underperformance in the equity market the other thing that could create an underperformance in the equity market would be the economy in the short term being even more resilient and inflation therefore being more stubborn which means the fed decides they've actually got to raise interest rates a few more times and that's a big threat for the u.s economy over the medium term and that could cause a downturn in equity markets as well so that's where the that, that that's where uh the situations i think that could unfold where we do see a drop-off in financial markets then if, then at some point triggering uh the interest rate cut but i i agree i think ultimately we are going to see rate cuts at some point i think people and the fed are going to be hoping that they can do that without the drop off in the markets that they can do that without a recession they can achieve the soft landing that enables financial markets to either steadily move higher in the interim or just remain steady as they have over the course of the last uh, year or so uh, before they can start cutting interest rates the economy can start to bounce back and we can start to move past this period of pretty vicious inflation but that is obviously the very optimistic scenario
0: Thank you. So to finish off now with Craig, I'm going to ask You know, for people listening to this, we've discussed quite a few markets there. From your point of view, what do you think are going to be the most interesting, possibly the biggest movers You know, that the markets to watch for the rest of 2023?
1: I mean, I'm going to encompass a lot here. I'm going to encompass everything within the biggest market in the world. I think FX is going to be very volatile. I mean, if we ask ourselves what's what creates volatility in FX markets? Well, it's divergent central banks. Well, at the moment, we've seen, for the last 18 months, we've seen central banks raising rates effectively in tandem. Uh, and I think that's started to weigh on volatility quite a bit. Whereas the Bank of England's just become more dovish than most. The ECB's just been more dovish than many expected. The Fed's been more hawkish than many expected. And just as central banks start to consider rate cuts in the, around the turn of the year, the Bank of Japan is going to be deciding it may need to start tightening monetary policy and raising interest rates. So I think that's going to create uh, plenty of volatility in the FX markets uh, going forward. Um, and there's obviously going to be plenty more complications to come. The great thing about following the markets I at mean, the minute is, I think, while we're not necessarily seeing volatility everywhere, and uh, especially, for example, over the summer, we haven't seen enormous amounts of volatility because of what central banks have been Uh, doing I I do think there is scope for volatility in many different areas now going into 2024 because of the change that we're going to start to see away from a very uncertain environment towards something with a little bit more certainty and like I say that divergence isn't going to do any uh, harm either and we've also touched on commodities we've touched on gold so we've touched on oil but you could look at gold as well that's been uh, really fascinating crypto's kind of fallen off the radar to some extent over the course of this year but now we're looking at etf applications we saw the sec ruling which means we could start to see these uh, these etf applications be accepted that could be a potentially positive ca- uh, mo- uh, story for uh for crypto and kind of revitalize the crypto especially if it coincides with rate cuts um, and then what I said earlier, AI, uh, I think is going to be something It's something that's helped to stabilize equity mar- markets this year. It's not going away. It's not going away. So when we start seeing trades cut, we start to see the economies performing better. We start to see people become more, more, more optimistic. I expect to hear a whole lot more uh, about AI. So I think 2024 is going to be a really exciting year for financial markets. And I can't wait to see what's uh, what's what, what's going to come with it.
0: Thank you, Craig. As always, fascinating insights, really good discussion there. Thank you very much. And hopefully we do catch up again before the end of 2023 so we can set ourselves up for 2024. So, Craig, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. If you'd like to know a little bit more about Owanda, uh, the firm at which Craig works, do check out the notes of this podcast. There'll be a link through to their website so you can have a little look around and see what those guys do. Once more, thank you very much. This podcast was presented by Oanda, TradingView's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money.